In the second segment of the dialogue with Zen master Diane Hamilton, she dives deeply into specific practices for working with challenges such as grief, forgiveness, the never-ending process of purification or cleaning up, and explores the challenging dynamics that can arise in male-female relationships and also male-female ways of being. Join us for this and more with Zen master Diane Hamilton. Welcome to Deep Transformation. Self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. You know, this in my case, you know, losing my mother in the last two weeks or losing my nephew in the subsequent week afterwards and experiencing just the, the peculiar and, you know, it's a funny thing with grief because it's like in one way it's, there's a quality of, of being overwhelmed and particularly there's a particular moment that I've experienced with both of them in, in my mind where there's just this sudden grip. And it's somatically somewhat unfamiliar, like a grip in the body when I recognize they're gone. Mm. It's like the most essential moment where it just, I feel slightly nauseous. Everything comes to a kind of a, a stop. And then there's just this sense of, oh, they're not here anymore. And just to be, to have practiced to be present to the fullness of that moment not to try to get rid of it because it's uncomfortable but to feel like i oh my solar plexus are gripped you know my mind is stopped and there's and i literally am having the sensations of nausea and that's this very poignant moment of just this essential recognition that they're no longer here so meditation really prepares us to be present to whatever's coming up so it might be dealing with my say my older brother who he's not used to crying and he kind of in my company just starts to break down and he's really, really uncomfortable with the the wetness, you could say, of grief and tears and, and that. And he gets really uncomfortable and not not to mirror his discomfort, but to simply just kind of be there when he's feeling massively uncomfortable and not to get uncomfortable at the same time. So that's what I would say. I'd say it allows us to be present to whatever is available in the moment. And he allows you to be present. What you didn't actually say there, but you, you demonstrated in your voice and, and attitude was that you're not adding a judgment of you shouldn't have that experience or that experience is bad or you should be feeling something else. So that it's both being with and not necessarily having those kind of other reactions. Yeah. Or if you do have them, they're okay too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but a lot of times we are free of that kind of a, additional layer of re reactivity. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to ask you to just say what you're learning there, and maybe I'll, I'll contextualize it by saying, when my wife, much loved wife Frances Bourne, died a few years ago, I, I was so grateful for having a practice because there was so, there were so many ways in which I could see I could create extra suffering for myself. There'd be a wave of of mm -hmm. grief, and then I'd go into the experience and realize, okay, well, this isn't fun, but I can be with it. 
And there would also be moments of mindlessness where the, where I'd get lost in some train and thought, oh, how terrible, I've lost Francis, I'm going to be alone. Mm-hmm. And those, getting lost in those trains of thoughts was significantly more painful than the actual raw experience. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so there was that, and then there was the fact that, you know, in some ways it wasn't a, wasn't a surprise. She was older than I am, and, you know, we all know, you know, if you do any practice, you know, we're going to die. So his neighbors came down just a few hours later and said, you don't, don't seem surprised. And I said, well, I'm not surprised. I'm shocked. Yeah. Yeah. And there was such a contrast because a couple of months later, the, the man and the husband and a couple below, in the condominium below me died, and I went down to, down to see, see the wife and, Lend whatever counsel and support I could, and, and he'd been not 87. And one, and one of the things she said was, "You just don't expect this." Well, actually, at 87, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like so. You know, we we've done you know we've done in our training a lot of practices on reflecting on mortality, and, and they're not necessarily fun practices, but boy, they so sure turned out to be useful. So I just would love to hear any insights you've had from this, these few weeks of challenge with your mother. Well, I'd like that distinction you make between surprised and shocked. My mother was 85, and so it wasn't a surprise, and she'd had COVID, but it was a shock because it's so specific. It's very specific and it's complete. It's final. You know, that's the finality of it is everybody knows is that there's a shocking quality to that. I think also that I have, I didn't always have an easy relationship with my mother. I was her oldest daughter and there were, there, she had a complex mind and so did I. And so there were times when we struggled, but I really had, after my father died 10 years ago, I, I really was very devoted to, to supporting my mother. And I think she came to see that. Over the years, yeah. she, she came to see me kind of somewhat differently. Maybe, maybe when I was younger, she always experienced me as setting myself apart from her and what she wanted. And now she saw me joining, you know, more with what she needed. So I think that, that that had an impact on her, but there's still a part of me that's more in the kind of emotional, conceptual replaying the past and trying to kind of make peace, if you will. And, and then, Sort of seeing that it, it it doesn't take me anywhere, and what what actually does is doing some of the like Tonglin practice, which we learned from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. You know, of taking in the pain and feeling it fully, and acknowledging it, and then on the out breath, releasing it and allowing it that spacious quality of mind, that unconditional quality of things being as they are, and the sort of inherent goodness of that. You know, and so using the breath as we say to to take in the difficulty and to acknowledge it and then to actually see that it's also empty and that we're also free of that so i've been engaged with quite a lot of tonglin with my mother which i find leaves me in a place of with a much more open heart and less mm-hmm. less trying to use my mind to reconcile something that i couldn't reconcile in all the years we knew each other even though it changed, you know, I was never able mm-hmm. to reconcile it where the practice itself really allows for that. And, you know, one of the things we have in common too is just, I don't know if you can be a contemplative in the States and not have some relationship to the shamanic tradition, 
but I one time did an ayahuasca journey and what happened in that journey that was really will always stick with me is for whatever reason, I was shown at almost like a portrait. It was like hanging in front of me, kind of in, in the mind's eye in front of me of my mother, like a, like a portrait in which all of the afflictions of our relationship were not there. Mm. Yeah, it was just, it was just a remarkable experience to just see her beauty and her radiance free of whatever that static was between the two of us. And so I have that reference point also when I engage the Tonglen practice and it's very helpful mm, to me as what well. A, what a gift. That's yeah. Awesome. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And then the night that my nephew died or that I learned that my nephew had died, I, the listeners haven't heard this, but my nephew died. He died the day after my mother died, but he was a heroin addict and he used and climbed up into a tree and he died up in the tree. And he was there for nine days while we buried my mother and went through all of her effects and settled her affairs. And then we discovered that he had also died. And then the day that I discovered it, I was at our retreat center in southern Utah. So I went out to the backyard and I built a fire for him to simply honor his life and this passing and to make manifest the, you know, the, the power of ritual acts, which our traditions give us lots of access to. And yeah, at the kind of at the point that the fire had really stabilized and was burning well, a big owl swooped in. And I'd never seen an owl on my property, but this big owl swooped through, and they're silent, as you know, swooped through and then perched in a tree right above where I had built the fire. And the, the owl was big. I think it was a great horned owl. I, you had them over in Teasdale, John. But it was a big owl, like, you know, looked to me like as big as an eagle. I, I went and looked and they're not, they're not that big, but that's how, it, that's how big it felt. And I couldn't help. It was a medicine owl. It was a medicine owl. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but experience it as a blessing and as a communication of sorts, you know, and that's a wonderful thing about the, the kinds of experiences we have in the shamanic or within the, in the subtle domain is the meeting, the meaning is communicated or received and without it kind of bypasses cognition. It's just a felt experience one has in the body. And it doesn't matter if empirically it's true or not. What matters is that the meaning, the, the quality of communication in that domain of subtlety is there, you know, and I felt very relieved. Just yeah. it really changed my state of mind completely. So those are some sort of beautiful things that have kind of happened in the, in the realm of the subtle that have been very yeah. supportive to me and also really, really helpful to me in the process. You know? Yeah, it's, it's very powerful. Um, when something like that happens, there's an energetic shift. It's just like totally okay. Yeah, like oh yeah, I forgot the world is big and expansive and mysterious. Mm-hmm. You, I think both of you have more facility with this than I do. I tend to be very cerebral, so so an owl goes up there, you know, comes by at a opportune moment, and there are so many. I realize there are so many perspectives one can take. And my mind usually puts it in, you know, goes to a conceptual analytic. What are the odds? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. And yet, what you're describing is a is a simple opening to the symbolic import of an experience. 
clearly that has value and benefit, not just for you, but for some, perhaps the majority of people. And there's something, something beautiful about that, which I, it's helpful for me to hear that because I'm aware that I'm a little, it's a little less accessible to me simply because of this hyper-developed intellect. But you wrote a book on shamanism, right? I did, yes. <laughs> so, you know, we teach, we, we teach what we need to learn. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to, uh, you know, share a little of my story. It was that loss and, and tragedy led me to practice. It's all within like a week. My dog got run over. I found out that my partner was having an affair with a friend of mine. Okay. And then my older brother committed suicide in my living room in a week. Okay. So Gosh. I packed up my truck. I was living in Wayne County in southern Utah, land that I love. I just took off. Later, I was talking to a friend, you know, says, when I was gone those two years, I said, John, you were gone four years. Hmm. I didn't even remember. I was just in this state of, altered state of just way and way over my head, you know. And I'd, I'd studied to be a therapist, so I knew the cliches, how you're supposed to do it and stuff. Hmm. Felt like I was trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon. Yeah, it broke me. And I started, after about a year and a half, I started suffering deep depression, just states that noontime I would just go into the darkness. And then when the sun would go down, I, I would come out of it. But those hours between noon and the sun going down were absolute hell. And they seemed to last forever. And I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't mm. sleep. I couldn't do anything. It was just there. A heavy, heavy physical weight. I began to, to do things to... I started doing yoga. I started doing uh, Tai Chi. I found a therapist and I would say, okay, now ask this question. <laughs> this is what I need you to hear. I got out of it a little bit and then I started trying to put myself back in the path of service, you know, being a wilderness guide with kids having a hard time making it. And that helped somewhat, but it wasn't until I discovered uh, Ken Wilbur and what was going on with, uh, Integral Naked, which was the first manifestation of integral life and all. He said integral practice. And it just went ching, 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 ching. Of course. Mm. And, and I was so desperate just to survive, you know, so, or, or the, at least I could spend the last bit of my life in something noble, you know, something, you know, giving, doing something good. I just, I just took it on like he meant what he said. I just started doing it. I started meditating. I started working out and doing all these processes and doing it on a daily basis. And in my naivete, I thought, you know, Boulder was right over there that when I first visited there, there's all these practicing integral practice, super men and women, you know, that they're all, <laughs> it was just a really good idea and nobody barely did it. So I was just, okay, but I'm such an innocent fool. I'm just going to, you know, Ken said it and it works for me. So that really became the, the the motivation for my desperateness to practice and to, to develop an interior life, and it, it helped. And at times, I found deep peace, God, if you will, and uh, you know state experiences. But those states were really nice, and I left a residual you know, thing that I could refer to that I could come back to and open the place in, in, in. and then. Most recently, I lost my parents, and I didn't have any problem with my parents. I just adored them. 
you know. <laughs> and when I was in grad school, we had these these groups to help us teach therapists. We'd have a therapist leading. We'd all talk about how fucked up our parents were and all this stuff. And I said, my parents are really good. And all my shit is on me. And they're going, God, you're so in denial. But anyway, in, in the forward of my book, I said, you know, and that's my story. I'm sticking with it. So I, I really, really loved my parents. And they were just good people living, you know, to their lives. And when they passed, it was, uh, it was really hard. I think my my life of uh, practice and, and prayer helped. I don't know if I transcended it or went right through it, but my brother committed suicide. It, it took a year and a half for me to cry. Mm-hmm. And I was at my friend's house, and all of a sudden I woke up in the morning, and I said, mm-hmm. oh, my God, and I called again, and, man, come in here. And he just held me and grief, 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 coming out. This last last time, not so much. I was right with my grief right in the beginning. Uh, I'm still with it, you know, but it it does get easier. And sometimes we go through, we numb out at first. It's like we feel guilty. Shouldn't I be grieving more? No, you're just, you know, functioning. So you can take care of family and arrangements and stuff like that. And you, you know, you get to feel your feelings later. Yeah, I would say that's that was a huge reason that I practiced. I still do it. And I had a massive heart attack, like March will be four years and so I know you did. Yeah, it's like so I'm pretty I'm pretty clear my my demise is imminent, you know. <laughs> so yeah. so uh it, it, that was another initiation for me. Yeah, you know, I just want to make sure that, that I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I guess in my response to what's going on in the world, whether it's climate change or the the great divide in our country, uh, the rise of you know totalitarian or at least dictatorships and, and neo-fascism in so many parts of the world now. My existential as a human being response is to find out where I stand and do the best that I can. You know, so then when it's time to lay my body down, I can okay, well, you know, my bumbling way, you know. I did as good as I could, given what I was given, you know, and what I have, so. Deep bow, John. Deep bow to you. And that's how Roger and I met. We were, we both had these losses, and we were, in those days, we used to travel and fly different places. We met at a conference. I was a bit awestruck, or starstruck, I think, with being with Roger. It was like, you know, always up there, and we... You got you know, over that fast. Yeah, five, five, ten minutes. I was good. I'm, I'm, no, I'm actually still there, pretty much, Roger. Uh, I kind of dreamed up this whole this whole project so we could get Roger talking on video for the rest of the world. But, I'm so glad you did. Mm-hmm, me too. Yeah. Good thing. So, Diane, you you do so much in so many areas. Is there is there anything else that? Well, I I, I can ask about. Well, your life and your activities, and I'm also aware that one of, and I've been, it's been running through my mind that this is a, a wonderfully different dialogue than the ones we've had before. <laughs> of course, one of the reasons is, is you're bringing in this, in the Zen simplicity, but another is you're bringing in the feminine, feminine side, and it just has a very beautiful and distinctive feel. So, how do you find that? What do you find as as your role as 
as a woman teaching, because this is a relatively new, historically, it's a relatively new role. There have always been great contemplative teachers, but mm-hmm. they're women, but, but they have been a distinct minority. Mm-hmm. Now, we're approaching a time when they, it's not a majority, they're certainly a large minority. So, mm-hmm. you're kind of a, in some ways, what the Jungians call an epical person, that is a person who embodies in their own life the issues of our times. So, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your reflections on that. Well, the first, I mean, my first response is that, you know, that I, I love this poem by Hafez. And lately I've read an article about Hafez's, Daniel Ladinsky's translations, but this is a translation of a rendering. It's a rendering of Hafez's poem. He says, I've learned so much from God that I can no longer call myself Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Christian, or a Jew. Truth has revealed so much of itself to me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even pure soul. Love has befriended Hafez so completely. It has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. Oh. <laughs> spectacular. Beautiful. And, yeah, and so, so our practice does the same thing, you know, love is, Zen has befriended us and revealed the truth to us of our, you know, the, our nature, which is beyond identity. And, and so often I, I, I don't think about so much being in a woman's body or being perceived as a woman. But lately, what, two things have come up for me recently. One is that I was writing a, about in compassionate conversations, I was writing about what we mean by privilege, white privilege or male privilege. And, and I started reflecting on Rob McNamara, who started studying with me as soon as I received Dharma transmission. He and one other person asked if they could study with me. And I, if it hadn't been for those two, and they were both males, the other person was named James Bay. Some people knew him. That, that in a certain way, they kind of allowed me to teach because they wanted me to teach. So I did. And I, and I started having this insight that when Rob is around, Nobody hassles me. And I think he just kind of occupies this role of student who's in this very, as you know, kind of, you know, masculine form and very, such stability. And I feel like he kind of clears the decks for me to be a woman teacher. He models a way of being in relationship to me and sets this tone. And I noticed that here in Salt Lake City where he isn't, I don't have that experience. Mm. I feel much more challenged and Sometimes I feel a little bit like I'm given shit for being a woman. Like I actually feel that. And so I've got these two very distinctive experiences, one in which someone uses their, I don't think he does it consciously, but it just sets this tone that creates the very pristine environment for me to be able to deliver. In other cases, that doesn't happen. The other thing that I would say that feels very important to me right now as a woman is that it's so refreshing to see women in teaching roles and leadership roles and occupying positions of power. And at the same time, I think that one of the things about males right now, and just, you know, obviously we have some non-binary people in our world and our life, but, you know, males have been taken to task for the shadow of masculinity for quite a while now. So that when it comes to, to domination and over control and being too impersonal and not having enough feelings and, oppressing those around you by not allowing them to speak or have get their values on the table or presuming everybody shares your values or whatever, whatever that whole basket of things are. 
a lot of the males that I'm around have really, you know, had a confrontation with that, those issues. And I'm afraid that for a lot of those of us who are women that we haven't, because we're just coming into a kind of social status and power, but a lot of that unprocessed feminine shadow, if you will, is there. Meaning that there's still unconscious will to power. There's still kind of quality of manipulation, the way in which we destabilize each other, the way in which we gossip and build coalitions in the background and get our power derivatively, those kinds of bad habits that you might say we have. I don't feel that we've had the same confrontation with ourselves around those things that males have. And so that's one thing that I, I want to really support as women move into positions of leadership and power to actually challenge all those bad habits that we also have, you know, these, these indirect ways we have of wielding power and accumulating power and using power that are not good for anybody. You know, even within the Me Too movement, I think sometimes I've seen some examples of that, which I just don't feel are good. So as a, as a female teacher, I guess my commitment is to try to clarify more deeply for myself, my way of being so that the, that shadow qualities that Ken has taught us about don't get enacted in ways that do harm to mm -hmm. myself and to others. So appreciating that I can be a woman and teach without a lot of crap coming my way. And on the other hand, wanting to challenge myself to, around my own clarified ways of being. Mm. That's a beautiful example of the way each advance, both social yeah. and individual, calls for and calls forth new limitations and conditioning to be looked at. Yeah. <laughs> There's never yeah. an end to it. Unfortunately, yeah. it does get more subtle. It's the cleaning up that Ken yeah. talks about, the waking up, growing up, cleaning up. What's yeah. the other one? Showing well, like up. Showing up. Uh, yeah, cleaning up goes very deep, and I'm intrigued to have been studying with Dan Brown for the last few years, who's a, just a brilliant both as a teacher and as a and a intellectual. He, hmm. He's he's given me a whole another understanding of the of just how deep the cleaning up that is, what traditionally was called purification. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Psychologically, it would be would be called deconditioning of old mm -hmm. unskillful habits, neuroses, etc., and particularly of more destructive ones. But he points out that most of the maps we have of spiritual maturation go from beginning practice to the time one has a first deep insight into one's own mm -hmm. fundamental nature and the nature of reality. But he points out there's a second layer of maps which go which go from that initial awakening to stabilization. And then he says, and there's a much rarer set of maps which go from stabilization to full, what he call, called in his tradition, Buddhahood, or uh, full enlightenment, or whatever words we want to use for the the, the fullness of one's humanity. Mm -hmm. And he points out that the, the distinctive feature of the 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 first set of maps combine all the practices we know about there. It's a, it is purification or cleaning up. Mm -hmm. It is learning to concentrate and be aware and compassionate, etc., etc. And the, the second set of maps is stabilization, is 
is working with whatever gets in the way of maintaining a co- that continuity of awareness and an openness throughout the day and eventually even throughout the night. But the third stage really surprised me. He said, third stage is primarily about purification. It's the continual release of anything which gets in the way of opening to and living one's fullness, one's true nature. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I never, never appreciated or thought about the fact that the mm-hmm. purification might be a practice which goes all the way up and is, becomes increasingly central as other, more, mm-hmm. other grosser or, you know, more manipulative, I'm not finding, quite finding the right words, but, but as the path grows more subtle and mm-hmm. refined, one finds increasingly still these subtle obscurations to mm-hmm. both recognizing one's fullness and expressing it appropriately and skillfully and helpfully in the world. Mm. Wow, that's very interesting. It's yeah. very interesting, yeah. yeah and now it makes sense why sometimes the whole, you know, we say, yeah, maybe you've heard Dogen Zenji's talk about enlightenment is mistake after mistake. <laughs> So and mis- my experience. <laughs> and then mistake after mistake means that some form of atonement or rectifying or reconciling oneself or purifying or releasing is in order. Right? Mm. It seems yeah. so. Yeah. Ramdas had the nice story of the spiritual path proceeds one body length at a time. You take a step, you fall flat on your face. <laughs> you <take yourself> up. <laughs> it's a it's a prostration, but it's not it's not as elegant as a prostration. Two, two just, body lengths in my face. Yeah. Just falling yeah. on your ass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all usefully life is very humbling. Yeah. In a in a positive sense. And it doesn't and humbling not as meaning deflated or bad, but just as you said, life gives feed, gives you feedback. And if we're open to the feedback, then in our better moments, it's like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not just open to it. I'm hungry for it. I got one more question for you, Diane. Oh, and sure. what, you, what you were saying about, you know, assuming your position as a woman and yeah. of masculinity has been held up yeah. to dry and deconstructed and, you know, yeah, well yeah. deserved. But as a woman, as a teacher, as a, mm-hmm. A wise person that we, you know, that we, we rely on the whole wisdom. What do you want from us as men? What would you request? Oh, well, I would like you to, what I would really like from men, I, I feel like I receive a lot of in my circles, but I think it's, it's the recognition that this body is not nearly as dense. And for me to be able to hold my own in relationship to you requires either you being more open to what I have to offer or me becoming denser. And I would prefer not to get dense. I would prefer, in fact, my particular form, it's really, really difficult. So if we're going to engage and if I'm going to have a role, it's going to be because you invite it in the way that you have on this call, right? Because I, I just simply have become aware that you know, like I used to feel this at the Integral Institute that just kind of holding my own in relationship to these young males that have so much density and so much testosterone and so much urgency and so much push, there was no way. 
So that kind of old idea in a certain way that, that the masculine has to make itself available to the feminine in a way, just because it's, it does appear to be your job to enact it. You know, you're, you just have more force, period. You know, and I'm willing to allow you, you know, I don't want to get in the way of that at all. But the only way for us to really be related is for you to invite what it is I have to offer because I don't have the density to push it. What does density, I'm not quite relating to density, I think I'm getting some connotations, but say more about what what you mean by that. Well, I think, I mean, you'll hear women complain sometimes that, see, and I, I think for our listeners, like the way in which you're listening to me right now, like you're completely focused in receiving. In other words, you're enacting the feminine by receiving me. It allows me, because I'm being received, it allows me to, to be a little bit more subtle and even gentler in what it is I have to say. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. what we experience is that in order to participate, that, that old cliche that we have to be like a man and that, mm-hmm. you know, Again, you know, I can say that as a woman, I need to learn how not to repeat myself continuously and to notice when my message has been received and to be more precise about what it is I want to deliver and not indulge some of the feminine habits that come from not feeling like you're being heard. So I can, I can be available to the collaboration as long as we understand that these differences are real. You know, that makes me, it makes me really sad that you have to say that. I can't think of any more spectacular woman teacher off the top of my head than you right now, yeah, that you have to deal with that energy from men that makes you not feel safe or not feel received. That bothers me. Well, I, I appreciate that, but I think what's also true, as you know and I know, as does Roger, that we're in, we're in, this, we're in this evolutionary clusterfuck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm not Putting mad at you about it. Terms, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love that saying that it's beautiful, but it's not pretty. Uh-huh. So, you know, we all have, we all, so I appreciate that. I appreciate that, John. And we're just growing up together. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. We're just growing up together. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, we are, you know, uh, no, uh, no one's at fault. Uh, you know, I'm, but- I'm, yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. We're just growing up together. That puts a whole another <laughs> another perspective on it. You know, really. Uh, really. Uh, it reminds me again, Ramdas, one of my dear teachers and friends, you know, just walking each other home. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What would you like for women as men? What would you what do you feel like women need to see and recognize that would make it all a little bit easier? That's a really good job. Boy, thank you for that. I wasn't expecting that at all. Well, I haven't been asked that one before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a great question. And I'm not sure I have an answer off, off the top of my head. Let's see. It feels like it is obviously just going to be off, comes up, but it feels like, and doesn't feel specifically ge- gender related. It feels like mm-hmm. letting, you know, the okayness to not be okay, to, to be human, to accepting and forgiving my, our foibles. And, you know, I, I know forgiveness is a loaded word, but I, you understand what I, what I mean. And forgiveness of humanity and the fact that, as you said, we're all just growing up together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
that would feel make it feel safe for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of having to perform, uh, you know, be on top of things, look good, <laughs> look smart, <laughs> you know, take care of it all, uh, make it all work. I don't have that so much, but each of us has our own brand of it, to be sure. Yeah, I, w- I would say a forgiving heart would be really good mm-hmm. for me. Kindness and gentleness and not feeling you have to compete with testosterone-soaked monkeys, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that you, you know, you come through with your own, your own beauty and your wisdom because the masculine soul craves it. Just the feminine presence without it, it's, it's not, uh, and there is something else that comes up as I have time to feel into it. And it's something which has been very, very evident in our conversation. And that is you, Diane, embody an aspect of feminine, which I think is so, so valuable. And that is the, the I think it's the opposite of what you were calling density, the sensitivity mm-hmm. to your experience, your inner, your, your own inner world and, and relationships. That I, when I see that in women, I'm, I find, can find it inspiring. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot I'm about, I'm trying to get here and actually, we're actually here in this moment together. It's like, and if I just stop and be sensitive to this moment and, and become a little more gentle, then it's, it's a little more beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think our, our roles, I, I struggle with this. It's something, Goes back to the, the knightly ideals, but that mm-hmm. men are to protect and worship and serve the feminine. Mm-hmm. When we have that, even you know, in, in, as in Don Quixote, the, the prostitute—I forget her name—but he saw Dulcinea. You know, if we can just hold all women as sacred. I was very moved by your story about Rob, and I wanted to say, if I'm ever in town, Rob's not around. Give me a call. You know, <laughs> I'll be there. Yeah, for you. he really does. Um, yeah. That's yeah. I did. I do have another ayahuasca story that seems kind of appropriate right here. But I, after I had split up with my first husband and Mike and I were contemplating getting together and I was mad and I felt like I was mad because I, I felt that at that time I was in my early, was in my early thirties? No, I was just about 40. And I felt like, you know, it's that what people of color describe, particularly black people talk about having to, I think Du Bois described it as that being able to move between worlds where you have to, you know, have to move into the white world and then back into this more exclusive world. And that felt that way to me that I, in order to have a relationship, I would enter the world of the male, but I didn't feel the male would enter my world, you know, and I was mad about this. And I went to this ceremony and I made an intention to, to heal that, to somehow, to ungum, unstuck some, get something unstuck in myself. So it was really funny because I'd never, actually it wasn't, it wasn't ayahuasca ceremony, it was a peyote ceremony. And I'd, I'd never met this guy before. And he was this, you know, kind of robust native person who had really long hair and was cheerful and kind of buoyant. So he was, he was working with me and, for whatever reason, he was working with me, and the more he worked with me, the more frustrated I got. Like, I just started not to like him for some reason, and at a certain point, I just, I got fed up, and I just turned around, and I just kind of flipped in the bird like that, like, you know, in front of, like, 30 people, you know? Exactly. And at that point... In the pee in the ceremony? 
<laughs> oh, Diane, awesome. Just, just full on, you know, just said like, it was like very archetypal turning my back. You know, I turned my back on the guy and, and he just, he just looked at everybody and he just said, give her more peyote. You know, so he just like doused me in peyote for the rest of the night. Like I was so altered. And he was, he was not insulted. In fact, I saw him after the ceremony and he, he said, he said something to me along the lines of something about how sophisticated I was, or he used the word sophisticated or elegant. I can't remember one of those two words, but anyway, he was very charming, whatever. He didn't hold a grudge. And then I drove home. And when I got home, my brother, who was younger than me, extraordinarily beautiful man, charismatic like Elvis, you know, good looking like that. And for whatever crazy reason, out of the blue, he had come to my house. I was a single mother at the time. And he had just kind of groomed my entire yard. He trimmed all my trees, raked everything. And when I arrived, he had like this bundle of, of like tree limbs and, and was carrying them. And I just saw like this image of this male who was so there in that moment, just being helpful. And it was just the, it was like this vision and it just completely changed me. And I really feel like whatever that stuckness was, I had around my relationship to men that it got, it was liberated. I don't have it anymore. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah nothing like a big dose of medicine. <laughs> Just give her more. <laughs> also, combined with with a beautiful act of generosity yeah, and, care and service from, of love from someone. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, and it's not chocolate. It's not chocolate pudding. It's no. Uh, it takes a lot of courage to eat that stuff. It's just it awful. <laughs> and I'm terrible. I'm 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 the worst journeyer. You know, I'm just terrible. So anyway, so you know, maybe so. Maybe we forgive one another yeah. and love one another. Diane, is there anything else you'd like to to say or to comment on? No, what's coming up for me is just gratitude. You know, be thanking you for having me and inviting me to be here and be in conversation with you both because I love talking to both of you. Mm -hmm. And I feel also, you know, the one thing we could say is one of the reasons we study in permanence in all the contemplative traditions, why Don Juan says we carry our death on our left shoulder is so that it, so that we can become grateful for how precious this life is. Yeah. So I feel I feel a lot of preciousness in this moment, and I'm really grateful for this morning and for this conversation. Likewise, definitely likewise. And it's John. And I knew it would be a gift to talk to you, and it has been and is. I'm I'm actually aware of this respect and love I I have for you, and and what you embody, all your years of practice and cleaning up, purification, we. And what I, I learned in, in the process of our dialogue today was, was your, the, at first I, I'd missed that when you were talking about, you know, your Zen's contribution, it was like I was missing that it was just this ability to be with, the, with the experience, the challenge, global warming, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Like, yeah. But just being with it. It's like, oh yeah. <laughs> so simple. Yeah. <laughs> so, so clear, so lucid. Yeah. So anyway, deep, 
deep gratitude for being with us and and sharing the the health. mudra. The, the esoteric mudra that they don't teach. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So thank you so much. It's been such a gift. Yes, Diane. Thank you guys. I'm I'm left with wanting to be a better man. What a Yay. gift that is, huh? Thank you. Yay. Absolutely. So yeah. Thanks everybody. Yes. Love you guys. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.